Revelation chapter 2. This is the longest letter out of all seven of the letters. And they gave it to me. <laughs> they gave it to uh, the most long-winded guy. So uh, I can't see it going any longer than the last one did. So, But again, you know, be ready to dig in a little bit. Make yourself comfortable. Um, don't want to... Uh, don't want to cheat you, because I feel like we're already, to a certain extent, cheating you going through each letter in a week, um, and there's just so much. But, of course, a lot of you who, who teach and get into your word or have put together a sermon before know that the word is inexhaustible. It's you know The more you go to it, the more it gives you, and then at some point you just got to cut it off. So um, so we, we, we don't want to swing too far this way or, or too far that way. Um, and I just added like a minute right there, uh, which was dumb. So uh, let's go ahead and, and uh, start by reading the text, chapter 2, uh, verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Letter 4, Church of Thyatira. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works." And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works till the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, first off, we've got to deal with one of the main characters, just like we have um, in every letter, and that is the city itself. We've got to talk a little bit about uh, Thyatira. And I, and I want you to understand why this matters. Um, why do we do this? Why do we go back and look at history? Why do we look at culture? Why do we look at immediate context? Um, and that's because, first of all, these are real churches that we're being written to. So these are real things that are being said to real churches. Okay? Um, but here's the biggest one. The way that we interpret our scriptures matters. The whole goal of what we're trying to do anytime we go into reading our Bibles is to, uh, we want to line our, our brains up and our hearts up with the author's intent. Okay? And so in order to get the correct intent, which then leads us to correct interpretation, we need to actually pay attention sometimes to history and to context and to culture. Um, if we come up with a wrong interpretation, guess what we will come up with next? A wrong application. If we come up with 
wrong interpretation of Scripture, we will come up with a wrong orthopraxy or practice, the way that we actually take that and move it into action. Do you guys know any of these people? I know a ton of Christians who are living in weird, kind of far-fetched ways, teaching weird things, um, uh, walking in just weird structures and habits as a Christian because of something that they wrongly interpret in their Scripture. That's why we have cults. They're all out there doing things that are a little off because their interpretation's off. And so we just need to, to make sure that um, we're, we're getting what we need to grab hold of that authorial intent, to discover it, all right? And so that's why we do this. So the first character, and that was another five minutes wasted, but I, worth, I, I believe it was worth saying, though. So um, the first main character, Thyatira, what was it like? It was the smallest city out of all seven of these. But, again, it, it's got the most written to it. It's the longest. I'm not trying to make anything mysterious out of it. It's just interesting. Smallest city, most said. Okay? It was founded by Alexander the Great as a military garrison, and him, his soldiers, and the majority of the citizens uh, there from its conception right up to the time of this letter worshipped the god Apollos, a.k.a. Son of God. Apollos was known as the Son of God. Um, this was a normal town, uh, far smaller, like I said, than the others. Nothing special, nothing fancy, nothing that you'd leave your, uh, your country uh, to relocate to. Um, like if you were going on vacation with your family, you wouldn't be looking at a map and be like, we're going to Thyatira. It was not a resort destination. Uh, it was just a small, uh, very average town, very industrial town, very blue collar. Its primary commodity being textiles. Um, it is said that the water there was so rich uh, in minerals that it became famous for its color red. Somehow, the red that they produced there was more bold and more brilliant than other reds in the world. It became known for that. It became actually world-renowned for its color red. In fact, um, Paul's very first convert in Philippi was a lady named Lydia. And the text says there that Lydia was a gal from uh, Thyatira, a seller of purple. It would have been this bold, brilliant red that they were producing there uh, that's referred to. Um, but Thyatira wasn't just famous for its red textiles. It was also world famous for its silversmithing and its bronze smithing. Apparently, it produced some of the best pieces in the world, and it was in this industry that the majority of the population would have held their occupation in. The catch is that Thyatira held to a social, industrial, religious structure. So all three of these things were pressed together. They were inseparable. And this three-pronged structure was all formed around and lived out through the guilds, which basically you and I would know as unions, okay? And each local industry had its own guild. So the textile industry, its own guild. Silversmith, its own guild. Bronzesmith, its own guild, etc. right? But like I said, the problem is that these guilds weren't just a labor union. They weren't just connected to your source of income, but also to your social and your religious ties and allegiances. So these were actually life guilds in a way. In other words, they were hubs for worldview formation and control. They were hubs for conforming the citizens, making sure that they continue to conform to the dominant Roman worldview. And since life there centered around the guilds, the guilds did life together. 
And each guild did this by holding frequent parties and frequent get-togethers and celebrations in the temple of Apollos, which consisted of very anti-God immoral practices. This is where it gets weird, because what are Christians to do? What are they to do? If you said you weren't going to one of these celebrations or festivities, you risked the success of the guild. Um, because Apollos might be angry. And if Apollos got angry, then your guild would fall onto hard times and everybody that belonged to it, right? And if Apollos is angry, that particular industry could not, would possibly not succeed. And that was simply unacceptable. So the guild had no choice but to execute the obvious and expel you. You would lose your job. They'd hit you where it hurts most, which is in the pocketbook, if you didn't play ball. And every single Christian living in Thyatira in those days had to make that choice. Jesus or his career. And that's Thyatira in a nutshell. So let's go to the letter. And um, I'm using the same structure um, all the way through as as I would get to every letter. Uh, You got three parts. Basically, the qualification of the author is where it starts off. Um, and then the body of the letter or the report card, right? Um, and then you've got the, the um, basically the prize to the overcomer, the reward to the overcomer. So first we start with the qualification of the author, which basically when I say that, all I mean is that Jesus is going to give us some imagery. He's going to tell us something about himself that, um, that, that tells us that he has the right to say everything that he's about to say, that tells us that, that he has authority to speak the things that he's about to speak. Um, and so this is, this one's no different. And by the way, each of the titles, if you've noticed each letter, he starts off with a different image of himself or title of himself. Every single one of the ones he uses in the seven letters are found in chapter one. When John first gets, catches that glimpse or that image of, of Jesus on Patmos that day. Um, and, and he goes into, um, giving us that description of what he's seeing, who he's seeing. All these descriptions are in that. Description. So Jesus is actually pulling from John's description of him and placing those um, at the top of every letter. Interesting. Doesn't change anything, but interesting. So what we have here uh, in the letter moving into verse 1, it starts with um, Jesus saying, the words of the Son of God. The words of the Son of God. Um, now, why should he start this way? Why, why would he start this way? Is this something that's arbitrary? Are these arbitrary? When he does this, and, and I think the obvious answer would be no. Jesus is extremely intentional with how he introduces himself, considering especially what Apollos is known as, the Son of God. So, so in a sense, Jesus comes right out of the gate with these guys, and he goes, no, uh, actually there's only one Son of God, and it's me. It's, it's he who's talking to you right now. I'm the true Son of God. Apollos is a counterfeit. Jesus then says, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, which is an obvious reference to what have been the primary occupation of a lot of the men in the church, smithing. Okay? But, of course, the greater reference here uh, would, as to having eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze would be speaking to the fact that Jesus sees all his eyes and that he will carry out his judgment according to what he sees, his feet. This is, this is actually something that's, that's echoed and re, repeated, uh, patterned throughout the Bible. 
having to do with, with the eyes and, and feet. Basically, what Jesus is saying here is, I know your works, and I'll be dealing with them soon. Okay? Which is cool if you're doing cool. <laughs> Um, another way we could say this is actually what, what he says down in verse 23. If you let your eyes wander down there real quick, all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, eyes, like a flame of fire. And I will give to each one of you according to your works, feet of burnished bronze. Which is a sobering thought. Uh, again, I know that I, I might have kind of said this last time, but I want to I say it again. Um, Jesus cares about what we're doing here. Jesus cares about this little, teensy, insignificant congregation called the door. It is actually um, a candlestick stand in the hallway that he walks up and down in. He observes what we're doing. He observes how we're treating each other. He observes how we're loving each other. He cares about what we're doing with the entrusted gospel that he's given us outside these four walls. He cares about how what we're doing and how we're interacting with Dave, the atheist. And he cares about what we're doing in here. If we're displaying Christ to each other, if we're loving each other, if we're constantly putting each other above ourselves, he cares, he sees To you and I, we're a little, not very sexy church in an insignificant place on a map. But to Jesus, it matters who we are, what we do, and how we do it. And this is a reminder of that. So glorify God well in here. It matters what we're doing and how we're we're treating each other. And this is just another example of that. Um, He sees how we're doing, and he's also at some point going to deal with, uh, according to what he sees. And, and I want it to be good, and I want it to be good for you too when he comes to deal with it. Verse 20. No, I'm sorry. Not verse 20. Uh, 19, valuation. Valuation of the letter to the church, basically the report card. I know your works, he says, your love, your faith, and service, and patient endurance. He goes on to say your latter works exceed the first. There's a couple ways that you guys can interpret this. One might be that their, their uh, patient endurance and their service are, are stronger suits than their love and their faith, but I, I don't think that's what he's saying. Um, I actually believe that he's saying the works that you do now are even better than the works you did in the beginning, which um, is weird. If you look at the letter, you're going, come on, dude, like haven't you just read this letter? Like these, <laughs> these dudes got some bad stuff going on. I, I'm not saying they don't, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't worse when this church started. It doesn't mean that it wasn't messier, right? And so I, I believe that, that what Jesus is saying is that this church here, for the most part, is on an upward trajectory, which is good. They're growing. They're maturing. There's improvement from where they started. And this is pretty rad, considering what they were up against. And these are good words to hear from Jesus. These are, these are really good words. And I pray that we at the door, um, same thing, are on an upward trajectory, that we're not settling in something, but pressing into more. That we're not just going through motions and buying our time until Jesus comes back and gets us, but that we're wanting more Jesus every single day. That we're wanting to be more like him every single day. That we're 
honestly examining ourselves and looking at the hard stuff and the ugly stuff and the dark stuff that's in each of us individually as well as correct, uh, collectively and going, gosh, I don't want that. I hate that. I want to be more like him. Less of me, more of him. And um, I believe in so many ways we've, we've seen that here over the years. Um, thanks in large part to Terry. That was supposed to be a good joke. That was a bomb, so let's just move on. That was a compliment, brother. I know your works. And I would like to say, like, let's just start the, the letter here. This is an A-plus in some critical areas, so let's just jump to the overcomer and close this deal out. Um, but we can't uh, because there's another subject that they need to be graded on. Um, and this one's not going to be an A+. Plus. This one's going to be a little bit different, and that is the subject of sanctification, or we could call it holiness, or we could call it consecration, um, basically being set apart. We need to talk about that. We need to talk about that. So verse 20, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food that's offered to idols. So who is this Jezebel? Um, nobody's really sure. But I want to go ahead and start off by saying this. Uh, that probably wasn't really her name. Um, her actual name, whoever this lady is, even though it was an individual probably, was probably not named Jezebel. This is a title. This is... Um, something that I believe even the congregation would have known just because of what this word is synonymous with. Um, what we do know is that this lady, whatever her real name was, was inside the church, not outside of it. She wasn't trying to, uh, she wasn't on the outside pressing on the church. She was actually invited to the inner circle. She had taken up residence inside the people of God as someone who's not a person of God. And apparently having quite the influence. And it seems plausible that she was encouraging Christians at some level, in some way, not to quit their jobs. Just play ball. Just work with the system. Don't fight the system. Encouraging them to go along with that which was required of them, to go to the festivities, to be active participants in those godless activities. We don't really know for sure who she was or what she said for sure, but if we're even partially familiar with our Bible, she sounds pretty familiar, doesn't she? Anyone ever heard that name before? It's something that we have seen. We have seen her before. Her name has some history. And if we were to go back, if we're... Again, partial, partially familiar at all with our Bibles. Uh, Israel had a king at one point, which was the most wicked king that Israel had ever had. And this man's name was Ahab. And this man had a wife. And her name was Jezebel. And Jezebel had a hobby. And that was worshiping Baal, or Baal, B-A-A-L, however you want to pronounce it. I have no idea. Um, but, but that's what she did. That was her deal, was worshiping. And because she had influence and she had power and she was connected to royalty, she was able to go in and convince a large portion of the Israelites, God's people, also to worship Baal. Even to the point, it got so bad at one point, that they were even killing their own children, that the Israelites were even sacrificing their own children 
to Baal. That's how bad it was. And there was a point finally where God said, enough, I'm going to put an end to this. And he did it by bringing in the Babylonians to basically decimate the place and haul them all back to their land and put them into captivity. That's basically how, how God came and dealt with that then. And so um, we can see from that, knowing that, that these Jezebels, uh, the one from the Old Testament and the one from the New Testament, have, a, have kind of a lot in common. In fact, it's probably why Jesus calls her Jezebel, right? Um, it's obvious that she was dangerous, um, not just in her encouragement of ungodly behavior, but in how she lured the people of God into that ungodly behavior. If you notice closely what's here, um, it, we have every right to think that this lady was enticing people with a certain kind of language, with a certain kind of insight and intellect. It, you know, I don't know about you, but it's, it's pretty easy when someone comes in my life and they're just going, hey, you should come over here and do this. And it's like blatantly ungodly. Like it's, it's not really a threat. I'm going to look at it and be like, I'm coming with you to do that. Right. But if someone comes in and throws it on its head and makes it seem logically, intellectually, philosophically like there's more to it than just that, then we can start to question things a little bit. Um, and that is what this lady was doing at some level here. Uh, it would seem that she spun her poison with a type of intelligence, that she employed an intellectual approach with Jesus and others uh, referred to in verse 24 as the deep things of Satan. The deep things of Satan. As if she's cluing the people of God in on something. As if she's helping them think more, more clear or maybe more deeply about the things of God, as if maybe they've been misinformed or misled in their current belief and thinking concerning what God really wants from them. She's bringing this into question. And if there's one thing that I've learned in my brief 10 years of pastoring here at this church, it's that um, these people still exist in the church and they're dangerous still. They're dangerous still. Some of the characteristics these Jezebels seem to share is their likability. They're always likable. I wish that wasn't true. We've had a few come in over the years to this church, and they're the people that are they're magnetic. You just everyone just gravitates to them. There's this thing about them that pulls you in. They're they're likable. There's an intellectual appeal too. They know their scriptures well. They're not stupid when it comes to their Bibles. They know what's in there. And their ability to communicate what's in there is usually pretty pretty good, pretty quality. They also seem to have an authoritative nature, like listen to me, follow me, kind of like a leader would be. We've had, like I said, a few of these over the years, and the stuff they're pushing, the false prophet, the false teacher, is always billed as the deeper things of God the deeper things of God, which Jesus and a discerning person would actually call the deeper things of Satan, the opposite. Just remember this as far as identifying these people. Um, God doesn't change his mind on the things that he loves and hates. God does not recant about that which is holy 
and that which is not. Those things are parsed. Those things are settled. Those things are set. And so if someone comes to you with something that's slightly new, um, no. No. Because because really what, what the Bible is, is it's a God-revealed document um, that is self-interpreted. And our job as the people of God is simply to hold fast to that interpretation. We don't need to decode anything. You and I don't need to crack a code or solve a riddle and constantly, therefore, come up with new things in the Word of God. That is scary when you see somebody doing that. What we are here to do is to protect orthodoxy. We are here to hold fast to the once-for-all truth that has already been established. That's what you and I are crusaders of. We're not here to blaze a new trail. We're here to um, protect and preserve and proclaim an old one. Because that's where there's life and there's power. So, so just remember that. If, if you see someone come to you, I don't care how well they know their scriptures, and they're bringing a new interpretation or a new twist on something in the Bible, no. No. That's, that, that, that would go under the category, more than likely, of, of the deeper things of Satan. Not God. Right? Um, I get told all the time, I was told by my kids many times when they were growing up in my house, Dad, you're on the wrong side of history. I, I don't care. I, I, I don't believe God's ever on the wrong side of history. I don't care how much culture changes or um, our, our society changes or things around us change or thinking changes or laws change. Like, it doesn't matter. You and I, as the people of God, are never on the wrong side of history. We're always on the wrong right side of history because God is always right. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, even if it looks off, even if the world is going a completely different direction than us, even if we are just immersed in the minority, if we are just aliens, not making any sense because we're so primitive in what we believe and what we think, I'm okay with that because that's where God is. I want to be where He is. And He's never wrong. He doesn't change. You'll go, what about Genesis 6? He says that he repented. There's like little examples that you'll see in there where God like changed his mind, right? And, and first of all, I would say it's impossible for a being like God to change his mind when you are omniscient. <laughs> in, in other words, God knows everything. So it's, impo- it's an impossibility for God to change his mind. So why are those things there? Why does it sound like, like well, it was obviously for the sake of the people he was commun- the man he was communicating with, not him. When it comes to things that he loves and things that he hates, that's it. That's where he's at with them, guys. That's where he's at with them. No matter how stupid you and I might look for holding to him. Okay? And so when someone brings you something different or brings you something new, saying, no, no, no. Like, he, he really didn't mean that there. Which I've heard, and a lot of you have probably heard, in some way, in some context. No, no. Just look stupid. Look like the dumb one. Just reject it, deny it, send it back. All right? God doesn't change his mind. He never comes to a place when he starts to disagree with something he said. Gosh, I wish I, I, wish I wouldn't have said that back there. Because I'm really starting to see this thing differently. I'm really starting to feel different about, about this subject. Right? So what's the point? The point is this. Look, if, if I was to boil down, because we're never going to get through this. So, um, so, like the, so the, goal, the goal with this is, is that um, 
is that you, you and I can know the heart of what Jesus is saying to the church in Thyatira. It's not that we're going to be able to like comb through all of this. And so here's the heart. Are you ready? In one sentence, this is the point Jesus is making. This is the message that he has for this church. Um, I am not okay with you sleeping with the enemy. That's it. That's the letter of Thyatira right there. Jesus is not okay with his church, his children, his people sleeping with the enemy. Never, ever. He's not okay with his church selling out to things that are contrary to him, no matter how much they seem to know or how attractive they might be or how much the world has changed. He's not worried about being found on the wrong side of history. No matter when it happens or where it happens, Jesus is never okay with his people compromising, no matter how much is at stake even. No matter how much is at stake even. This is where it gets harder. No matter how deep into the minority we may find ourselves. And when it comes to the subject of loyalty and allegiance and holiness, regardless of the cost, the majority of this church bombed. Because being in the world and not of the world is not an elective for the Christian. Let me say that again. Being in the world and not of the world is not an elective. It is actually a prerequisite. If you are a follower of Jesus, it's a prerequisite. It's required learning. We are learning here to be aliens. We are learning here to be foreigners. We are learning here to be, like I said last time, on the margins instead of the center of the page. Because this world, this land, this country, this city is not my home. I'm passing through. And if you belong to God, you're passing through too. Don't put down too many roots. They will get uprooted. We are learning day by day as Christians to learn how to be more and more alien in a place where we do not belong. It's a course that we all must take. And we must take it seriously for his glory and our good. Compromising the known will of God to save our own skin and make our life easier is a huge problem to Jesus. And he would know, wouldn't he? Like he would know. He's not asking them or asking us to do something he knows nothing about or that he wouldn't do himself. You and I, I don't don't care what you've been through as a Christian or what you will face as a Christian. What Jesus went through and faced is infinitely larger on every level than what we will. He knows. He was really tempted in the wilderness. When Satan came to him, he was really tempted. You say, well, how could that be? He couldn't sin. He's fully God. Yeah, but he was also fully man. Like he was both. And so that fully man side of him was really tempted. Like he had a real need for those things that Satan was offering him. And he was in a real needy, vulnerable spot when Satan offered them to him. And so we can, we, can, we can go ahead and safely assume that there was anxiety. There was challenge going on inside of him every time Satan opened his mouth and, and put his hand forth on one of these deals. He knows what it's like. He knew what it was like in the garden when he's sweating drops of blood, right? And, he, and, he, and, he, and he's saying, Lord, I, I know, Father, what's ahead of me right now. Like, I, I know what's comes, what comes next. Um, if there's any other way, if there's any way I can get out of this and do this another way, please like present it to me. Please give it to me. I like anxiety. 
Like the, he is troubled, troubled over what it is that he, that he has to endure next. And, and even when he's on the cross, right? Think about this. The creator of all things being mocked, tortured, ridiculed, murdered slowly by that which he created. And he stayed. He stayed. He could have come off that cross at any moment and put some kids over his knee. You know what I'm like? Handed out some spanks. And he didn't. He stayed. What would that take? He, see, he, he, he knows what it's like to endure patiently hardships, to be challenged, and yet to hold fast to your faith, to the glory of God and the joy that's set before him, like it says in Romans or Hebrews 12. And it's the same thing for us. What we endure is for the joy that's set before us, which we're going to get to if I ever get to it. Jesus knew the challenges of being in the world and not of it. And that being said, Jesus is not okay with his church sleeping with the enemy. He says, get out. Get out of bed. Get out of the house. Be done with her. And this is exactly what the church in Thyatira in large part was was doing, was sleeping with Jezebel. Satan seems to have two primary tactics when it comes to messing with the church of God. One is to crush the church of God, um, to push down on them so hard that they're snuffed out. And if that doesn't work, then he usually reverts to joining the church of God, um, befriending it, taking up membership in the church. Um, And this, I think you and I would agree, we see it all over today. Uh, And this is nothing new. Uh, this is old, it works well, so why stop doing it? And this is the way Satan does this. He takes up membership in the church. If you can't beat them, literally, join them. And um, if um, a lot of times we're just so non-discerning that uh, when he does, we'll pull up a chair next to us and say, sit, sit here next to me, friend, you know, and, and there he is. Though the circumstances may look different today, this tactic of Satan is not. He's still joining churches across the globe. He's still becoming a member. In our current context, it's primarily in the form of bringing us alternative gospels, which you hear about from us all the time, because that is where the main battle is inside the church, is with alternative gospels. It's not new, but it's highly effective. That's why he plays that card. And and it's people just tweaking enough here and there until it's false enough to send people to hell. So take your pick at what that false gospel is. There's many of them out there uh, today. Um, But in one form or another, that false gospel aims to tell us that we need Jesus to save us from something other than our sins. That's what they all have in common, no matter what false gospel it is, is that we need Jesus for a reason other than that we need to be saved from our sins. Just remember that. That keeps it really simple. So it doesn't matter if it's a a patriotistic gospel or an American gospel, which we're uh, seeing a lot of these days, um, or uh, health or finances or relationships or whatever it is, whatever reason you're told uh, Jesus is going to fix it. uh, If it doesn't speak to your sin and the fact that you have offended a holy God, you're getting you're getting sold a bad a bad bill of goods. Not the real gospel. You and I need Jesus, and the reason he came to this earth and endured the things that I just walked you through is because you and I have offended deeply a holy God. And we're going to have to pay for that. 
if someone else doesn't. And so he did. So that now we can be, again, on the right side of God instead of the wrong side of God. Jesus made it possible for you and I as sinful human beings, God offenders, rebels, to now go from being on the wrong side of God, deserving his wrath and punishment and judgment, to being on the right side of God, getting all of the fullness of his goodness, kindness, mercy in Christ. That's the real gospel. One of the one of the big ones today that we've seen come into the church is uh, what's what's basically called um, progressive Christianity. Anybody heard of this? Progressive Christianity. Look out for this one because it's coming to a city near you. Um, it's probably already here. I think it's in a few churches around us. Uh, progressive Christianity is basically just a byproduct of what we've seen our culture and our society already go through or transition through, which is that now we live in a postmodern society. I, I think I call it a post-truth society, which basically teaches everybody that there is no objective truth or absolute truth. Everything's subjective, right? So whatever you believe is true is true, and whatever I believe is true is true, even if they completely contradict each other. We're both right. It's very convenient, isn't it? it, it it's, it's, it's super convenient. It's very Romans 1, even, uh, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. But, but this, this, uh, um, this war against absolute truth has actually crept into the church, too. And so you can even have people in your church that are like, well, I, be- I believe in Jesus and I love following Jesus, but other people don't have to. Like eventually God's going to have his way and, and all ways lead up, right? Um, things like hell are questioned. Things like the resurrection are questioned. Um, you basically can question about anything that you don't like or doesn't sit well or seem silly. And it's true now because you said it is. Right? And again, this comes back to what we were talking about earlier. We're here to protect orthodoxy. We believe in some pretty fascinating claims, you and I. This book right here claims some stuff that's, that's even ridiculous sometimes. But you either believe it's true or you don't. And I believe that all of it, no matter how crazy it gets sometimes, is true. And so my job now as a child of God and a rep of God is to protect those things, to hold fast to them. Um, whether someone else believes it or not. And so we, we uh, have this postmodernism in, in the church. Um, and basically, <clears throat> you can have people nowadays where you can have a cat and two people, and one person can say that's a cat, and the other person could say that's an elephant, and then they both look at each other and go, we're both right. That is a cat and an elephant. That's how ridiculous it is. That's, I'm serious. Like, that's how, how bad it's going. And, and here's the deal. Here's the bottom line out of this ridiculousness. Somebody's right and somebody's wrong. They're both not right. Somebody's right and somebody's wrong. We are not all right. We are not all right about this. We are not all right about what God wants or how to get to God. Just because we want to believe something, listen to this, just because we want to believe something doesn't make it true. Truth and belief are two different things, but they're being billed right now as the same thing. They're not. And either Jesus is right, this goes to the heart of our Christianity, guys, either Jesus is right or Jesus is wrong. When he says things like, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody 
comes to the Father but by me. He's either making a statement of exclusivity that is true or it's a lie. And you and I have to come to terms with that. We have to answer that question. Do I believe that what he's saying is right or do I believe he's a liar? Because that's what he says. There's, there's no room for relativity there. There's no room for subjectiveness. That is an objective truth statement. I am it, the door, not one of many. There is no other way up. And I say, praise God, there is a way up, right? The world should be happy that there is a way. We've talked about this before. It's like cancer. If there was one form of a cure that came down the pipes, we'd be going, yes. Or would we be going, I'm not, that's not acceptable. I, 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 there needs to be at least eight. Ridiculous. Praise God, there's a way to God. And his name is Jesus. Why do we hate that? He's either telling the truth when he makes statements like that, or he's not. The, st- the statement is either believed and received as an absolute truth, which is called repentance, or it's rejected and discarded um, as not true, which is where actually Jesus brings us next in this letter. I promise you the rest of this is going to move really quick. Verses 21 and 23 tells us that her, even her, Jezebel, is shown patience by God. This one I don't understand. Like, I praise God that I'm not him. Like, I would be handling business immediately on the stuff that I see, right? God is so patient. He is so long-suffering. He is so careful and delicate beyond what you and I will ever imagine towards the people who don't deserve any time. He's given this lady a window. Even the one who destroys and corrupts the people of God has shown goodness of God in an opportunity to repent. She's given an opportunity to turn, to be made right, to acknowledge that she's wrong and he's right. But she will not. Because she's convinced of the deeper things of Satan while believing them to be the deeper things of God. And so God will close that window of repentance on her and not endure with her forever or her children which are those who follow her. I'm sure that you guys got that. Um, it probably could go the other way because of the nature of her hobby, uh, but the, these are actually just followers, not actual children. And his wrath awaits them. His bronze feet of judgment are coming for them, and he will cast them into a quote-unquote sickbed. Now, again, I, I don't know what this is, if it's physical, literal, spiritual, all of the above. At once, I don't know, but what we do know is that Jezebel and her followers are very familiar with beds. (laughs) So he's going to give her another one to lie in. Sorry, that was probably tasteless too. He's going to take her and all who follow her from her bed of pleasure and put them into a bed of pain. Again, he sees all. He executes judgment on all that he sees. So that all the churches will know that it is he that searches the mind and the heart and gives to each according to their work. The letter then starts to transition, verses 24 and 25, into the message to the overcomer, the final part of the letter, the prize, which says, But to the rest of you, you who have not sold out, who have not compromised, who have not slept with the enemy, who do not hold to his teaching, who have not learned what some people call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, Only hold fast to what you have until I come. And I love this. In in other words, for those of you who are not playing Jezebel's game, stay put. Keep doing what you're doing. 
loving well, remaining faithful, serving others, enduring patiently. He's not putting another rock in their bag. He's not saying, okay, now try this on. It's going to be a little bit heavier to follow me, but just, no, he's, he's saying, you know what? Stay faithful in what you're, in what you're doing well in. Right? Hold fast till I come. Continue to not drink the Kool-Aid that's being handed out in the church right now. Yes, you may lose your job. Yes, you may fall into hard times, but I assure you, you will soon be given a job by me that will make all of it worth it. Which brings us into the closing verses to the overcomer, the prize. The first being authority given to them by him to rule over the nations. Uh, in other words, uh, he's, he's saying, you know, you know those who are ruling over you right now and making your life hard and making your life miserable? Well, if you hold on tight, I'm going to... I'm going to allow you to rule over them. That's pretty cool. Uh, he's going to turn the tables. This is called redemption. This is called justice. How many of us love justice? It's coming. It's coming for the people of God. Right? He goes on to say to the overcomer, he'll rule them, the oppressor. Uh, I, I'm sorry, say to the overcomer, will rule them, the oppressor, with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Where have we heard this before? We have heard this before. It's uh, Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, which says, The Lord said to me, You're my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore... O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, and blessed are those who take refuge in him. This means that Jesus has been given the right to bring judgment and wrath upon the nations and God and godlessness, and the overcomer gets to join him for it. This is pretty cool. We we get to ride shotgun with Jesus as he rolls across, ride or die with Jesus, literally, as he moves across the globe and cleanses it from all unrighteousness. In other words, Jesus likes to share the love. He likes to share the gifts and the rewards that he's been given by the Father with us. He brings them in, us in on that. That's pretty, that's pretty neat. He's not stingy. And it pleases him to do so. The next reward, the final reward to the overcomer here um, that he will gift us is the bright and morning star the bright and morning star, and you might think, what what the heck is that? What in the world is that thing? And um, in ancient times, basically throughout history, even up to this point, um, it that was known as the goddess Venus, uh, a.k.a. the morning star, um, which was seen as the, the source of all authority. However, if we cheat, which we're allowed to do, and we jump to the end of the story, the back of the book, to verse or chapter 22, verse 16, we see Jesus call himself the bright and morning star. He is the bright and morning star. And do you know what that means? 
it means that he who overcomes gets Jesus. It means that he is the prize. He is the reward. And I think that this is worth us just sitting on for a second because I fear that if you're like me and you grew up in Sunday school, that our ideas of heaven got ruined in a lot of ways. Like I don't know some of the things you were told growing up in Sunday school or that you were taught or that you were led to believe or think or allowed to. But mine was kind of messed up a little bit. Um, And I just... Don't answer this. Don't answer these out loud. Um, but I want to ask you a couple questions. Okay. What do you think heaven is like? What do you think heaven is? What do you think is the point? What is it that you hope to get? And what's your greatest imagination of it? Because if your answer or your contemplations or your imaginings or your fantasies are not Jesus, you will be severely disappointed with heaven. I might even say, or dare I say, may even be seeking something right now that does not facilitate salvation. I've heard the question asked. I've had it asked to me. I've heard it asked to others. What do you think heaven is like? And I've come to find that most of the answers have something to do with getting large quantities of something we really, really like. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just going to be ice cream, like mountains of ice cream <laughs> everywhere. You know what I mean? Or, or it's going to be animals. Like, I'm just going to have pets. I'm going to be surrounded by pets. That's my wife right there. Right? Or if you're a Mormon dude, it's women. Right? Or... Or if you're a dude, period. I'm just glad it's not like a cloud with a harp. You know what I'm saying? I don't know whoever thought that was the best portrayal of heaven you could give. Because thinking of doing that for an eternity is hell, not heaven. Very rarely have I heard it answered Jesus. Jesus. And that is the right answer because it's all about Jesus. Heaven is all about Jesus. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, and he is the prize. He is the subject of salvation, and he is the subject of heaven, the kingdom, and our eternal state. We get him wholly, completely, ultimately, eternally. And I would ask, does this thought excite you? Or does it disappoint you? Does it it cause your soul to scream, yes! Or does it let you down? This is not a secret that this is the prize. He told us this, Jesus, up front, when he disclosed to us, to his disciples, basically, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you will be also. See, he let let out with that. It's not a shady deal. It is the deal. That we get Jesus. That is his selling point. That's his appeal. That is the reason to follow him. That is the reason to trust him. That is what he's leading out with. It's the draw. And that's the reward for those who are being drawn. It's him. It's him. An eternal staycation with our Lord and Savior. That's rad. It's not for everybody. 
It's only for those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. It's only for those who are being saved. And so we would ask, is that you? For me, this is a reason to overcome. This is a reason to hold fast to what I have until he gathers me to himself, no matter how alien or how stupid or how unpatriotic or how poor I look to others. In retail today, I promise you we're closing with this. Um, In retail today, they have this thing that's called a loss leader. Anyone ever heard of a loss leader? There's a few. What that means is that there are companies and organizations that will sometimes lose something in order to sell you something. Can you guys think of some of these? Have you walked into these stores ever? Um, they'll, they're not losing anything. They're going to make it up somewhere else. Okay? <laughs> they'll give away some piece of merchandise to get you into their store. Right? We see it often. I grew up in Los Angeles in the 80s. And so, like, I remember seeing this with professional sports growing up. So we, like, lived in the middle of um, the, the Dodgers, the Angels, the Raiders, the Lakers, the Kings. And, and my dad was a baseball junkie, and so there would be times he'd be like, hey, let's go to the ballpark today. We were Dodgers fans, not Angels fans. And uh, he'd be like, let's go to the ballpark today like it's bat day or it's hat day or it's like foamy, foamy finger day. I don't even know what those are. And, and like, his kids were like, oh, Oh my gosh, like we get a foam finger? You know what I mean? Like I had no idea, I had no idea like what it cost to get into the ballpark. I had no idea what my parents were paying for a Dodger dog, like how much the food is, right? But it was an unfair trade. Let's just put it that way. Like we're, we're walking in, give, we're, they're giving us a pinky and we're giving them a kidney, right? That's what's going on when you go to one of these games. That's the lost leader and it worked. It feels a lot of times, as a Christian, like following Jesus is, is kind of like a lost leader. You and I are going to give something up now. may not be huge, but we're going to give something up now in order to get the biggest gain that we can imagine on the back. This is what he's saying to this church in Thyatira. I know that this is killing you. I know that these people are coming down hard on you and you don't know what to do. But hold on. Give them a pinky and I'll give you a kidney. When it's all said and done, the reward that you and I get will not compare to whatever it is that you and I have lost here and now to follow Jesus. And this is the point. Jesus says in uh, Matthew 5, he assures us actually that we are blessed when people revile us and persecute us and speak evil about us and fire us from our jobs and throw us out of their clubs and their homes and their parties and their guilds. Rejoice, he says. Be happy, be glad, be joyful. For great is your reward in heaven. And are you ready? Because it's coming. We've had it pretty good for a long time here. Things are going to change. You may have to give a pinky. But Jesus is going to be well worth it. What blows my mind is that 
people like us are even allowed into heaven, like I said earlier, that there's even a way is mind-blowing to me because I know who I am. I live in my skin every day. I have been regenerated. I have been bought by the blood of Christ. His Holy Spirit dwells in me. But there's still all that junk that, that I see and I hate and I think, God, how can you have anything to do with this? How can you have anything to do with this? And what's on these tables, what's represented on these tables, is how God can have anything to do with this. It's that Jesus clothed himself in my rap sheet so that I could be clothed in his righteousness. My debt has been paid off. And if you're in Christ, yours has too. And if it hasn't, if you do not believe that to be true, that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and your only hope, then this table doesn't do you any good. So don't come. This is for people that depend wholly and completely on Jesus being their everything. Lord, thank you so much for your word, which is always timely, always perfect, never changing. Thank you, Lord, for the constant calibration, which we desperately need as we live in this world each week, hearing the garbage, just garbage in, garbage out from so many avenues all around us. Thank you, Lord, that we can come and have some of that removed and dispelled and and lit on fire, burnt, so that we can see again. And we just, we just proclaim this morning that you're, you're worth it. You're worth whatever's coming. You're worth whatever it is that we've been through. That we're going to get to see you one day. That we're going to stand before you and know you in a way that we haven't previously. That we will be together where you are. What a glorious day. We thank you for your body and your blood, which is full payment. Full payment, not partial, on our sins and our wretchedness, and our wickedness. Thanks for cleansing us. All to your glory, all to your precious name. Amen.